Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the first History Today podcast of 2014. In this episode, we speak to Richard Waite about Britain's complex relationship with its revolutionary past. Richard's article, Reluctant Regicides, which he co-wrote with Toby Haggith, is the cover story for our February issue, which is out later this week. Also in this issue, Andrew Pettigree outlines the birth of the newspaper in early modern Europe. Chris Turney uncovers a possible cover-up relating to the tragic demise of Captain Scott's expedition to the South Pole. Mary Erler reveals a remarkable cache of letters which shed light on the unlikely relationship between Thomas Cromwell and the female religious. And Patricia Farah considers the opportunities for scientists, particularly women, during the First World War. The February issue is out on newsstands from January 23rd. You can also download the digital edition for iPad, Kindle Fire, Android tablet and smartphones by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash app. Now, here's Paul Lay speaking to Richard Waite about Britain's reluctant regicides. Our cover story for the February edition of History Today is Reluctant Regicides, in which Richard Waite and Toby Haggis discuss why modern Britons find it so hard to acknowledge their revolutionary past. And Richard Waite joins us. Uh, In a recent Home Office publication, a survey of British history, uh, omitted all references to the civil wars because, and I quote, the wounds are still too fresh. It seems surprising that anyone should think that's the case. I mean, the English killed their king, and they don't like to talk about it. And it is extraordinary, um, given that it's had such an influence on, in the 18th century, on American revolutionaries, on French revolutionaries. Um, and yet, here in Britain, it's treated either with um, amne- a collective amnesia, um, embarrassment, um, uh, on both sides, on both you know, the, the royalist majority and the republican minority uh, are embarrassed by it. Um, and that's extraordinary because it's, it's not just a great bit of our history, but an influential piece of world history. You might even say that's the case uh, for the whole period of the civil wars. Yes, that's right. I, I, it's because it conflicts with... Uh, what used to be called the Whig interpretation of history, but still, to some extent, we have that narrative of our history of a democracy that evolves, uh, evolves peacefully. Um, hence the fact we prefer to talk about the glorious revolution of 1688 and the, the more peaceful trans, uh, transition to representative government. And 
the Civil War, as you said, generally, not just the regicide, but the whole Civil War period conflicts with that rather cosy narrative. Um, it's a revolution. Uh, and, and, of course, kings have been killed before, but they've been killed usually on the field of battle, fighting foreign enemies, or in secret through, you know, the dynastic struggles of the medieval and early modern period. But here was a king who was killed, uh, and Cromwell was very insistent that the, that the king should be killed in the sight of his people. Of course, before TV and the internet, in the sight of his people meant a few thousand people in Whitehall. But nonetheless, this was done in public. And the other difference was it was done for ideological reasons. Uh, it was done in the name of the people, the citizens. It wasn't about dynastic struggle or foreign battles. Because, of, uh, of course, the English had killed their kings before, but never explicitly in, a, in an ideological way as they did in, in 1649. I mean, we can see certainly that, that it's a shocking moment then. And, of course, there's the case of Penny, uh, which is always the uh, observation that's made of, of contemporary references to that. That's, that's the, the young boy. Who, who, who was witness to the, to the uh, regicide. Yes, but, what's been repeated, I mean, in chill, book, books that I read, I read R.J. R. Unstead's I think uh, Illustrated Histories of Britain when I was a kid, and um, the, the, the one on the Civil War says, uh, repeats this quote from this teenage witness saying, as, you know, as the head, Charles first head fell, it was such a groan as I never heard before and desire I may never hear again. But actually he was, uh, um, he was a courtier, uh, in the Restoration. Uh, his father had been very close to Charles I. He's not what you call a, um, uh, a, an objective observer. And I think a lot of the reason that the regicide's been written out is the way the Restoration's been written in. We, we're taught, I certainly was, I think to some extent it's still true, that you know, exit the Puritans, enter Nell Gwynne and Christopher Wren. Mm -hmm. um, fun and invention replace trauma and stagnation. And I think, um, actually, there was... A really bloody revenge, you know, 10 of the regicides were publicly executed in front of Charles II and Samuel Pepys witnessed some, uh, some of the executions. Um, and actually, uh, the uh, Charles II's ministers advised him that this was actually backfiring with public opinion, mm -hmm. that um, they didn't want to see this brutal revenge taken on the men who'd signed his father's death warrant. So clearly public opinion, it's not to say that everyone was in favour of the regicide, uh, but public opinion uh, was much more balanced than we've been led to believe, I think. I think perhaps as well that there, there, there may well be an aspect of this, of the decline of political history as well, um, and uh, the... the um, the raising in stature of social history, for example. And, and so in, in those terms, the restoration period, uh, when we talk, it, it, it's, it's a sexier sort of period than that of the civil wars and the protectorate, uh, which is much more of a political issue, great men history, if you like, to a large extent. Um, and maybe, maybe that side of its time as well. But every so often, every so often, this re-emerges in English history, an interest in the regicides, in the civil wars, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and I, I'd agree with you that, that it's a lot to do with, you know, and I'm a social and cultural historian, apart that, but it's a lot to do with the rise of social and cultural history and getting away from the titanic struggles between powerful men. And I think that is one of the reasons that, that the story of the regicide has been lost. But as you said, it comes back, um, uh, and in some unlikely places. Uh, I mean, it, it's not surprising, perhaps, that the Tollpuddle Martyrs um, cited the regicide as, as a precedent for taking on uh, the power uh, of, of, of the British political elite. 
But um, more surprising, perhaps, is that a lot of Edwardian liberals, Winston Churchill was one of them, um, who saw Cromwell as the father of democracy. Now, people like Churchill um, weren't in favour of regicide. Um, in fact, they, they too were quite embarrassed by it. But in the late, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, the liberal struggle for parliamentary democracy um, used the regicide and used the civil war as part of, 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 of their narrative. Uh, and as a precedent, so, for example, there's a campaign for House of Lords reform in 1884. Huge crowds stopped at the spot in Whitehall where Charles had been beheaded and speeches were made, warning the monarchy that if they, and the elite if they resisted reform of the House of Lords, then there was a precedent for, uh, for dealing with the monarchy. So there wasn't the embarrassed silence there is now. As I said, Churchill, for example, uh, at the uh, turn of the century when he was uh, First Lord of the Admiralty, he suggested that a dreadnought be named His Majesty's ship Oliver Cromwell. Uh, and George V described this as, as an offensive oxymoron, <laughs> and the plan was dropped. So people like Churchill um, saw this as part of the story of British democracy. Uh, and when Churchill was Prime Minister during the Second World War, um, he commissioned uh, a tank called the Oliver Cromwell, uh, which saw action from 1943 onwards. So um, he failed to get a dreadnought named after his hero, but he got a tank named after it instead. Um, it's not until after the Second World War that the regicide and the Civil War um, are almost erased from the story of, of British democracy. And why do you think that is? It seems curious. I mean, for instance, when we look at the example of the Cromwell tank, um, this is 1943. This is a time of great popular democracy. You think it anticipates the 1945 election, for example, uh, where Labour um, wins a landslide election. There's the talk of the New Jerusalem here. And yet we see the abandonment almost of, of uh, interest in, in the civil wars. Yes, that's right. I think it's partly because there is a, a fear in the Labour Party of being seen to be too radical and of upsetting the monarchy. Um, in uh, a year before the first Labour government in 1923, uh, the Labour Party uh, conference debated whether the Labour Party was a Republican Party or not, and it decisively voted that it wasn't a Republican Party, it was a, a Royalist Party. But um, when uh, a year later, when, when Labour won their sort of uh, their narrow election victory, uh, George Lansbury, the senior Labour politician, uh, told a big meeting uh, in London um, that um, there was a precedent for the king, uh, for, uh, you know, the king losing his head if he resists the will of Parliament. This was a leading Labour politician using the regicide to concentrate George V's mind yeah, on appointing a minority Labour government, yeah. and. It led to a huge, uh, uh, huge controversy. Conservative associations uh, said this has opened a new civil war between royalists mm. and anti-royalists. Some, some conservatives threatened to shoot Lansbury. Um, George V was so rattled by it that um, he had a quiet word with Ramsay MacDonald at their first meeting, uh, just as Ramsay MacDonald became pro the first Labour Prime Minister. And he said, um, I don't want Lansbury in the government. Yeah. And MacDonald agreed. So a combination of... Uh, royalist, uh, royal anxiety, um, the king's anxiety about republicanism and Labour embarrassment and a fear that Labour would lose moderate votes if it used the regicide, even rhetorically, as Lansbury had done. And I think 
what happened then in 1923 and 24 then echoed in the uh, mid-1940s and onwards. And curiously, I mean, I've got, I've got that quote here, and it is quite a really striking quote. I, I, I shall quote it now. A king of England had once stood out against the will of the common people, and he had lost his head. King George V would be well advised not to interfere. Such jiggery pokery is to be resisted. That's Lansbury. That is an astonishing quote from it a is politician. It's almost threat. a threat, yeah. You, know, yeah. you mess with Labour government and the Labour movement, you'll end up on a scaffold outside Whitehall, he's essentially saying. Um, well, one of the most curious um, aspects of this in recent, uh, in recent months, even, is the way in which its members of the Conservative Party, and I think now of people like Daniel Hannan and Douglas Carswell, um, on the right of the Conservative Party at that, who are more likely to invoke Cromwell and that period in positive terms than anyone in the Labour Party. Yes, that is extraordinary. Um, and I, I think it, it, it goes to back to, although Churchill was a Liberal when he suggested a dreadnought be named mm. after Cromwell. Well, these are very Whiggish Tories, I suppose. Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. And, um, but, but actually it goes back to, you know, a Conservative uh, narrative, as well as a liberal and socialist one, uh, you know, a conservative, a one-nation conservative narrative, but a conservative narrative about uh, British democracy, and that uh, sometimes peaceful evolution isn't possible. That sometimes, you know, t you know, tough, it's, you need tough love to, in the sense to get <laughs> democracy uh, into being. Um, and, I, and I think the Labour Party is still paralysed by this fear of of being. Uh, tainted with the Republican uh, Republican cause, and in a funny way, that frees up Conservatives to to do as Cromwell did and, and use it as part of their story of British democracy, and particularly, of course, in reference to the European Union as well, mm, yeah. and um, you know, protecting yeah. democracy, Parliamentary the European Union, yeah. which yeah. is ironic given that the regicide and the civil war inspired European um, mm. democratic movements. And let's just talk about that one moment because I mean, obviously, it inspired uh, European uh, republican movements, but perhaps uh, the most lingering effect. Uh, was on the other side of the Atlantic, um, where, where indeed you have three of the regicides escape um, to uh, North America. Yeah, that's right. And they have uh, streets named after them in, in New Haven. Um, and they're seen as... Uh, they were some of the few regicides to actually escape the vengeance of Charles II. Um, uh, and um, they became kind of forefathers, seen as forefathers of the American Revolution. Um, and and, it, and it, one of the most extraordinary things about this is while the British have forgotten uh, about the regicides, um, they're, they're actually memorialised more in the United States. And if you think about Churchill's idea of the English-speaking peoples uh, and you know, the Anglo-Saxon diaspora bringing democracy to the world, um, we think about that in terms of the peaceful evolution of parliaments. But actually, certainly I think what Churchill had in mind was also this um, revolutionary um, tradition, which the Americans still acknowledge, um, and the French and other, other Europeans to a lesser extent. But, I mean, one of the regicides was a founder of Harvard University. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so there is this extraordinary disconnect between Britain's revolution uh, being ignored by the British and being honoured uh, abroad, not least in the United States. Well, let, let's hope your article, Reluctant Regicides, it's the cover... Um, it's the 
cover article for the February edition of History Today. Let's hope we go some way to reigniting this debate, which I think is a much needed one. So thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.